Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Ben Vogley, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I was joined by Ambassador Louis M. Eisenberg, a Dartmouth class of 1964 who has had an impressive career spanning the private and public sectors. Eisenberg received his MBA from Cornell in 1966 before going on to work at Goldman Sachs, where he became a partner. In the 1990s, Eisenberg left Goldman to co-found Granite Capital International Group, an investment management firm of which he served as chairman until 2009. In the interim, Eisenberg has had a strong career in public service, serving as chairman of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which was heavily located in One World Trade Center during the 9-11 attacks. Additionally, Eisenberg has been a major fundraiser in Republican politics, for instance, serving as a key fundraiser for three Republican presidential candidates. Eisenberg was named ambassador to Italy in 2017, a capacity in which he served until 2021. Ambassador Eisenberg and I were able to have an excellent conversation about these many aspects of his career. It was fantastic to hear about his experiences and how Dartmouth influenced them. I think you'll enjoy the conversation. Ambassador Eisenberg, it's a pleasure to have you with us today, especially back in person. For our listeners, we're recording this podcast from Rocky. How was your return to Hanover, Ben, and is walking around campus evoking any fond memories? Thank you, Ben. I've had the good fortune to come back to Hanover a number of times over the last number of years. And so every time I walk onto the Dartmouth campus, I get that nice, crisp feeling that I am home. That's very good to hear. Yeah, no, it's a really fantastic place. And so I'd love to dig a bit deeper into your career, which is, you know, thoroughly bridged the public and private sectors. When you graduated from Dartmouth, you went on to get an MBA at Cornell before moving to Goldman Sachs in New York. And so how has your experience uh, at Goldman influenced your subsequent career? Well, I'll just make note before I I go into my Goldman career was I went to Cornell. Uh, I got married when I to my wife Judy when I left Dartmouth the mm-hmm. following year, uh, and so we were married at Cornell when we were at Cornell. And uh, when I went to Cornell, it was a master's in business and public administration mm. is how the school was described. Um, I had also hoped to double register and do a four-year law program. But then to our wonderful surprise, toward the end of that year, my daughter Lisa was born and there wasn't enough economic room for me to do more than get my master's in business. And then fortuitously, when I went to look for a job, I ended up with what I first thought was a clothing store, Goldman Sachs, and then learned it was an investment firm and spent the next 23 years there. Wow, that's fantastic to hear. And so were there any mentors at Goldman or anything like that that influenced you? I mean, how how has that kind of played into the rest of your life? I I have had the good fortune of, of having mentors, friends who are mentors and mentors who are friends almost all my life. And I still have friends who I consider to be mentors that have been helpful in my life. When I was at Cornell, yes, there were several. Um, I'll start at Dartmouth and then flash to Cornell. I I had the great good fortune in my 
uh, last year, a class of 64, to have uh, been a member of Paleopolis. Hmm. And Paleopolis on every other Friday or thereabouts had lunch with Dean Thaddeus Seymour. And we'd have the opportunity to discuss all kinds of interesting things. Interesting in terms of Dartmouth and often beyond Dartmouth and what was happening in the world when we left Dartmouth, what would happen. And on several of those occasions, mm -hmm. I had the great good fortune of having Governor Nelson Rockefeller uh, be a guest. And so for the first time, I met someone who held a powerful position in government yeah. and uh, started to think about where I was uh, in terms of my thinking in government. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how specifically did meeting with Nelson Rockefeller kind of influence your political views and your you know, desire to enter public service later in life? Well, it was a combination of things. I, I, I think he uh, and his comments kindled, and I wish I could remember specific things he said, but I can't. I, I can remember that I, I was surprised about how open he was to just sitting around in a relaxed fashion and talking to a bunch of college mm -hmm. students. Um, and of course, we had Thad, who would be engineering the discussion at that time. But my memories are somewhat vague now, other than it was a starting impression that led me to my one of my most significant political events took place because of my roommate at the time, Herb McCord, who unfortunately passed away recently, hmm. uh, was an avid conservative, which I didn't know until he asked me to march with him carrying a banner for Barry Goldwater. Right. And he convinced me one night to wake up early, carry some of these banners to friends who were going to march with us around campus. And so uh, with not a lot of foresight, he, I got up when he awakened me early in the morning, took the signs, walked over to what was then Thayer Dining Hall and uh, to deliver them to our friends who never showed up. And so the two of us started at around 8 in the morning or 8.30, marching around carrying Goldwater signs. It was an unpleasant experience. I never realized how many foul words could come out of so many Dartmouth guys <laughs> as we walked by them as I did that day. But it was a growing experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're a class of 1964, if I'm not wrong. That was the year that uh, Goldwater was campaigning against Lyndon or Lyndon Johnson, rather. Um, wow, that's a very you fascinating- You must be involved in political science. Yeah, I'm a government major. <laughs> you're, but, you're in the right place. Yeah, no, that must have been a really interesting experience. Again, yeah. I heard 64 was a pretty crazy year. It was it was a great class. So you served as the chairman of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey before and during the 9-11 attacks. Having just passed the 20th anniversary of 9-11, I think it would be meaningful for our audience to hear your perspective on that tragic event if you're willing to comment. You had earlier asked me about my Goldman Sachs experience, and so uh, if I can, I will come back to that later uh, in your questions, because it was very relevant to the rest of my life. 
um, uh, 9-11 changed my life. I, I had been involved at that point um, for almost 30 years uh, in the investment business and I had founded my own firm. Um, I was appointed to the uh, to chair the Port Authority in 1994, really close to 1995, and had six incredible years because the Port Authority, yeah. as you probably know, runs all the four major airports. It runs the trains from New Jersey to New York. It it has it had all the buildings that composed the World Trade Center. And uh, I had led the sale of the World Trade Center in 2001 and concluded amazingly in August. And then on some, for some still unknown reason, but one which causes me great pain from now and again, uh, I had a call from a friend asking me if I could have a cup of coffee to help him on something he was trying to get done uh, the day before I was due to retire and go to chair of the Sports Authority of New York and New Jersey. In my office, I went to start to my office for my going away breakfast and I was met in the Regency Hotel by the Port Authority police who told me something terrible had happened. Mm. and took me out, put me in a police car and said, we had, the towers had been hit by an airplane. And the rest was one of the more difficult periods, led to one of the more difficult periods of my life. Uh, I escaped, but 80 of my colleagues who I worked with for the better part of seven years um, had uh, had perished in that in that moment, along with friends who lived and worked in other places downtown Manhattan. Um, so, for the re instead of going to take a new job, I the governors of both New York and New Jersey allowed me to uh, continue uh, and stay with the port. So I was moved to a New Jersey location where I worked with the police. Um, the state police, Port Authority police, and local police, and all of my partners to try and move back into some kind of, or it gave me the opportunity to call Washington, get Carl Manetta, who was the Secretary of Transportation, and tell, us my, tell him my major concern was what could we have in the ports that would be dangerous? What ships could have brought in? Mm. And he said he would get back to me. But by the time he got back, we had moved forward, the ports were secure, and life continued. So I somewhere in there decided that I was going to spend more of my life trying to work to make sure that what was happening now would never happen to my children or my grandchildren or future generations. If I could, if I could make a difference. And so at the end of that year, I, joined, I was appointed to the uh, Downtown Reconstruction Development Corp, yeah. where I chaired 
the committee for the victims, for the family of victims, and and trans and the committee for transportation. But the committee for the family of victims was the most difficult job I think I've ever had in my entire career. That was a long answer to a short question. No, I can only imagine how difficult that experience was. And thank you very much for sharing it. And of course, it makes sense that that you know, influenced your decision to move into public service um, later on. I can only imagine again how formative and traumatic that must have been. So yeah, thank you again. Thank you. Um, you know, in that vein, um, a couple years after the 9-11 attacks, I know that you began to uh, work around campaign finance, especially in the Republican Party. And, you know, first you served as the finance chairman of the Republican Party in the early aughts, and then later as the chairman of the Trump Victory Fund, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm wondering what about campaign finance um, that you picked up on during those decades is not commonly understood by the public. What was your experience like working in that field? And again, what about it do you find to be interesting and counterintuitive? Well, my my interest in government and politics had been long before this event took place. Mm -hmm. It was actually uh, working on the finance side uh, for Ronald Reagan where I began to become very active being fiscally conservative, socially inclusive, no litmus test Republican who moved to make sure our security and our military was strong. So those were my political positions that became more secure after 9-11, but I had been raising money for candidates uh, since the time I graduated from Dartmouth. Mm -hmm. Do you have time to take a quick aside? I don't know how long. Oh, certainly, I'd love an aside. Um, we really should have started the discussion perhaps about Dartmouth first and then into my experience but Dartmouth has been critical to my life from day one not not the least of which was meeting my wife and, and really getting to know my wife yeah. at Dartmouth but subsequent to that I went to Goldman Sachs uh really not sure why I was moving to New York, which is something I was never going to do and going into the investment business. It had not been on my plate of, here's what I want to do. And going to the subway, there was a very large state senator who must have stood 6'5", and he was passing out leaflets. And I stopped to get a leaflet and I looked at it and said, you look a lot like my college dean, Thad Seymour. Hmm. And sure enough, it was his brother, Whitney North Seymour Jr., running for Senate. Um, He said, you went to Dartmouth, and he said, look, there's too many people. Put your phone number, your business phone number down here, which I did. He called me when I got back, and uh, there was a a message that my assistant came running in and said, a senator wants to speak to you. Mm -hmm. And I had just started there, so it made me very luminous in her eyes yeah and he invited my wife and i and our and our daughter to have lunch at his home in greenwich village at that lunch he asked me if i would be willing to work him in his with him in his campaign and my political career 
had begun and my ability and my uh, and the ask from him to help him raise the money to get it going all began from Thad Seymour's brother, a man, Thad Seymour, who I greatly esteemed, and his brother, whom I came to love, respect, and vote for. Wow. And so again, back to kind of the original question, what about, you know, campaign finance has been interesting to you? What is that like? And yeah, could you tell us a bit about it? Sure. Well, the first thing is, why take good, hard-earned money and give it to a non- uh, you get no tax uh, advantage by giving money uh, mm-hmm. to government. But if you really believe, for example, that uh, rapidly growing taxation is not a significant benefit to the public, and you're one of those who's earning a little bit of money and seeing a lot of it given away while mm-hmm. you're trying to raise your children, you give to somebody who basically has expressed that and whom you think will have a good chance of winning. So being a fiscal conservative, you don't want to see the country roll up a lot of debt, right? Uh, perhaps. And you want to make sure, on the other hand, we're doing the things we have to for strong defense and appropriate conditions. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I thought it was a natural thing. Now, I wasn't raising a lot of money when I began, and I wasn't donating a lot of money, but I was active. And so... Um, I started to be included in larger groups of Republican Party. Yeah. And uh, the thing I found most easy to do was to get similar contributions from some of my friends and colleagues who felt the same way about the same thing. Hmm. And it grew into being something that was as natural as going to work. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Now, it, it's worth noting that when you say... I, I was the Republican National Finance Committee chair for three presidential candidates. When when you take over that responsibility, you don't know who the candidate's going to be. You're raising money for the House, the Senate, and hmm. uh, but uh, I was the finance chairman for George W. Bush between 2002 and 2004. For the Republican National Committee. Yeah. Again, I was the same for John McCain. And then I became the Republican National Finance Chairman, and the nominee was Donald J. Trump. Understood. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for clarifying and also, again, for sharing that experience. Um, I'm now going to pivot a bit to your experience as the ambassador to Italy. Um, You know, for audience, how was it that you were nominated for the position, and ultimately, why Italy? Well, uh, my wife and I had traveled Europe, fortunately for us. Uh, primarily, I was doing it on business, um, but we fell in love with Italy as a country, not just its majestic beauty and its and its sense of history, but uh, the people and the strength of Italy in a very interesting place from a political point of view had, mm. had been very intriguing to me. It's the it's now the third largest economy, the $2 trillion economy. It hasn't been particularly profitable, uh, but, but uh, uh, it's the third largest population. 
and it's in the Mediterranean and the Sahel in Africa. It is politically situated to always be one of the three major countries in Europe. Yeah. Germany being the largest, France and Italy. And so uh, we had a particular fascination for Rome. Uh, someone very, very close to me uh, apparently suggested uh, to the president-elect that that would be something that I wanted and that I could serve well. And I had the good fortune of having his support to get me there. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I just took a class on the city of Rome, which was fantastic. I'd love to get out there at some point. It's, it is a fantastic place. Yeah. Yeah. Now the history is just sort of kind of unbelievable coming from, I'm from Denver, Colorado. And so nothing there is more than 150 years old. Yeah. Uh, and it's, <laughs> it's, cer it's certainly not like, not like Rome. Yeah, absolutely. So as you already mentioned, Italy is one of the largest economies of Europe and is also a key member of the NATO alliance. It also houses several important U.S. military installations. And so as ambassador, what were some of the key issues that you pursued between the U.S. and Italy? The only thing you neglected to mention is that it has one of the most politically interesting governments hmm. uh, probably in all of Europe. I had three prime ministers in the three years I was there. So the turnover was constant. And uh, the foreign minister represented, he was young when he started, 31 years old when I got there. Uh, he matured a lot by the time he was 35 and, and remained in office. Uh, and then there was a conservative juxtaposition in mm -hmm. parliament. So um, it was a fascinating time. My job for that first year was to get to know the members of government and to be able to bring those things which were important to our country to be accepted, understood, and followed by the, our Italian friends. It was an interesting exercise. That many moving pieces, I can imagine it having been a bit of a chaotic experience, but also an incredibly interesting one. It was both. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's also hard to think of something since World War II that has been more disruptive to the international system than the COVID pandemic. And, you know, as the ambassador to Italy, which was one of the first Western countries to be majorly afflicted by the virus, I'm sure that that was, you know, something that you were dealing with quite frequently over the past two years. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a bit about those experiences navigating the pandemic. Sure. I had... We had two and a half years of playing diplomat or, or more often interpreter of the nuances that came from the administration uh, to a second 9-11 for me. Um, uh, it happened that Italy was actually the first European country to get hit and got hit hard uh, on January 29th uh, of 2020. We, we were we were hit with one case of a couple, a Chinese couple, in a major hospital in Rome, who'd been diagnosed of having a strange communicable virus that mm. had come from China, from Wuhan. Uh, by the time we got to February 14th was our anniversary, 
it had mushroomed into a hundred, uh, maybe more. Um, we were in Spain uh, at that time on in a meeting uh, where they were afraid uh, to have contact with us mm-hmm. because they had heard about this community, and there were only 150 to 300 by then. Came back to the United States for a meeting with Secretary Pompeo um, on the first week of March. It had begun to get very bad. It was in the thousands mm. of cases, and it had started to spread in Europe. Uh, I had to change my my trip uh, back to see Pompeo. I, I came a day late and had to come back almost immediately because Milan was so bad that uh, we had to have emergency meeting upon emergency meeting to figure out what to do with our consulate where, where we had a hundred uh, working for us there, hundred Americans. Um, so I returned right away. I, I unfortunately didn't get to make all the meetings. I came back, uh, went back to Italy and that began uh, the first major decision I made in 2020, or, or helped uh, to, ex- to execute, mm-hmm. is better said, was to give the unwelcome uh, command that we were going to take 80 of the 120 people out of Milan. Now, mind you, you could not get uh, an ambulance if you needed one to the embassy for over an hour or to the residences. Hmm. So forget COVID. If somebody had fallen and injured themselves or had a heart attack, the hospitals were too crowded to take them in. The ambulances couldn't pick them up. It, it was terrible. So we did move half of uh, the embassy to Rome and the other half to other places that were secure. So, But the year continued like that uh, with lockdowns around the country for the whole time. Unfortunately, we've all lived it again here, and we have some idea of what a pandemic, how, how awful and deadly it is. Must have been, again, just a harrowing way to round out the ambassadorship. But yeah, interesting. It was indeed. So as a final question, and just as a side off the record note, this is probably what I should have asked at the beginning, but now that we've had all of your experiences, I'd like to know about how your time at Dartmouth has influenced your career and the choices that you've made in it. So to now kind of rephrase the question, um, to round back to the beginning of our conversation, are there lessons that you took from Dartmouth that you feel helped you in your career? And more broadly, how would you advise that Dartmouth students leverage their experiences here to make a positive difference when they're out in the world? Now, that may be the most interesting and difficult question that you have posed. I I hope I answered that a little bit about my experience and the people who had influenced me and much of the directions I went were really at Dartmouth. Um, I I will say that uh, there's no question that the academics are great, the professors are outstanding the ambiance and the beauty of the surroundings of the school that you're in is always something that gives you extra. But I would say, look to your left 
when you're in class and look to your right and look at the people who you have a chance to meet and befriend because the friendships you make and the understanding you have of the ethics and the importance of one another working together will last you your whole life. Two of my fraternity brothers were key to my success. One became a partner with me when I left uh, Goldman Sachs and he was in the radio business and we bought radio stations. His name was Herb McCord. He has also been my roommate and it led to great success. Mm -hmm. Subsequently, almost at the same time, we had developed a fund uh, and my partner in that fund was Walter Floyd Harrison IV, who was also a fraternity brother and someone with whom I shared class and education with and stayed as friends. So it has been a pivotal part of my life has been a consistent connection. And then perhaps the greatest honor that uh, one of the greatest honors that fell upon me was that Thad Seymour, Thad the Dean, mm-hmm. uh, went on my board uh, and served to help my company thrive uh, for the many years he was there. So Dartmouth was in my my body, my mind, and my soul from the day I got here till right now. Huh. Go Big Green. Go Big Green. And to mention uh, one last friend who uh, is still remarkable in my life and to whom I speak about often to my children and grandchildren, uh, Richard W. Couch and his wife, Barbara. Richard W. Couch was my junior high school friend. My high school friend, he came to Dartmouth College we joined the same fraternity, and we have stayed in close touch ever since. He has been a great business success, and even more, has taught me some great lessons about philanthropy, because he is one, he and Barbara are amongst the most generous people I know. And so uh, I say Dick last, but generally speaking, he has always been foremost in my thinking and my wife's thinking about what Dartmouth's all about. So hmm. thanks. Thank you so much, Ambassador Eisenberg. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Hemlock. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. If you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.